You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Jill Marr. of October 1982 to Edith and George McKeown. Three years later, the couple would have another child, Michael. The family lived in Termenfecken, a small village just north of Drogheda. That's the county town of Louth, which is north of Dublin, working out at about 50 kilometres from the city centre. They lived there before the housing boom, and so at that time, it was a small place near to a smallish town very picturesque, verging on rural. As a child, Jill was exuberant and messy and clumsy. She was always falling over things, but it was endearing. She was full of life and doted on by her family. Her mum said that she was goofy, but she had style. In 1990, the McKeown family made the big move that so many families made in and around that time, They picked up and moved abroad, setting themselves up in Western Australia, with her father taking a position with an accounting firm to further his career. This kind of move can be difficult for children, upending their lives and moving away from friends and family, but Jill took to Australia. The laid-back Australian lifestyle suited her, and she would develop a love for her new country. The whole family was granted citizenship there, but they eventually returned to Ireland around the time Jill was to begin secondary school. Again, she adapted to the move and settled back into life on the outskirts of Drogheda town. She attended Drogheda Community College, where she again made a name for herself as a friendly, outgoing person. She was artistic and thoughtful and cheerful and had lots of friends. After completing her leaving certificate in 2000, she went on to take an arts degree in University College Dublin, UCD, one of the premier universities in the country. She studied English and psychology and sociology, and began supporting herself with a number of part-time jobs. Her work experience was varied. She had a job working at the university bar, a very popular place to hang out and would also later work for the very posh department store on Dublin's Grafton Street, Brown Thomas. The highlight of that job was meeting Kylie Minogue when she was in town. Jill would later say she was delighted to meet someone shorter than herself. She lived life to the fullest at college. She made friends and was involved in the drama society and was in a few plays there too. It was during college that she also met Tom Marr. They were introduced through mutual friends and hit it off instantly. Within a few months of meeting, they were a couple. On graduation, Jill landed a job at the National Broadcasters here, Radio Telefish Aaron, RTE. In 2008, she and Tom married in July in her local church in Drogheda. Soon after, she and Tom and a number of their friends decided to take a working holiday to Melbourne. She loved the laid-back atmosphere of Melbourne, and it suited her. 
She was an easygoing and generous person and was the life and soul of the party. She was the kind of girl who would drag you up to dance to cheesy 80s pop, and no matter how resistant, you'd end up bopping along with her. She loved going out, and Melbourne, to her, was a great place to do that. Lots of restaurants, lots of bars and cafes, and also lots of shops. And Jill loved shopping. She had a distinctive style, which was brightly coloured and fun, and being so short, she loved to throw on a pair of heels. Quickly, and given Jill's citizen status, she and Tom decided to stay. Her parents had also made their way back to Australia by that point, though they were living on the other side of the country, over in Perth. They were all determined that this would be their new home. Eventually, they moved to the popular suburb of Brunswick, which was a stylish and popular part of Melbourne that was also popular with the Irish community. It's semi-industrial, so warehouses and commercial buildings are intermingled with shops and pubs and housing. It's an area that boasts the longest shopping street in Australia, Sydney Road. It's a broad street lined with cafes, restaurants, bars and clubs, as well as dozens of shops. Down the middle of the road runs a tram line. Jill and Tom rented an apartment one block away from Sydney Road in a modern building. They were quiet neighbours and well-liked. In fact, the only noise that their neighbours ever heard from the apartment was Jill's occasional singing, never any raised voices or arguments. That's not to say that Jill and Tom's relationship was without its troubles, however. In March 2012, while the two were both in periods of high stress, they separated. But it didn't last long. They were back together by June of the same year, and both had said that their relationship had actually benefited from the time apart. They were back and stronger than ever, and even making plans to purchase a home and discussing starting a family. In January of that year, Jill had landed a new job, unit coordinator at the Australian broadcasting company, the ABC, for a local radio station. She turned her hand to anything she was asked to do and quickly became the go-to person when something needed to be done. She enjoyed her work, and quickly and easily made friends with her colleagues. In August of 2012, she returned on a three-week trip back to Ireland, where she caught up with family and friends. But that trip was unfortunately cut short when she got news that her father, then aged 55, had suffered a second stroke. She headed back to Australia early and spent a week with her parents before returning to work on September 16th. It was a long week, that first week back to work, after all the travel and with the emotional toll of seeing her ill father. By Friday the 22nd, she was ready for a break. She had made arrangements with her work colleague Skye to go for after-work pints and the two left their building at about 5pm, striding out into the weekend. They headed for the local Ludlow Formation Bar, Jill walking ahead in flat shoes that would later change to her white high heels. She was a fast walker, full of energy, and maybe trying to compensate for her short legs a bit. The two had a couple of pints of Bulmer's hard cider and were joined by her colleague's boyfriend, before Jill took her leave at about 20 to 8. She had a party to get to. She strolled for about 20 minutes until she got to her destination, which was in Chinatown, the fad gallery on Coors Lane, 
and to the birthday party of Courtney Carthy O'Neill, who also worked at ABC. Jill had been invited to the dinner beforehand, too, but had passed up the offer, telling the birthday boy, quote, dinner is for suckers, end quote. Jill stayed there for about an hour and a half before she jumped into a cab with three other colleagues, Tom Wright, Joel Church, and Mark Veer, and they headed back to Jill's neighbourhood. But they weren't quite done for the night, so they settled in at the Brunswick Green Bar. Jill had texted her husband, Tom, when she arrived at the Brunswick Green, saying where she was and inviting him out. But he had fallen asleep on the couch and didn't see the message. The group stayed there until closing, and then Jill and just one remaining colleague, Tom, walked down the road to bar etiquette. The two sat in the beer garden, having one more for the road. Mr. Wright had been celebrating because he and his wife had recently just found out that they were having a second child. Jill was focused more on her career that evening. With her 30th birthday impending, she wanted to start doing something that she really loved, which was comedy writing, and to try and build a career for herself. Bar etiquette closed up at half one, and Jill and Tom Wright decided that they were done for the night. They walked out onto the street. Tom offered to share a cab with Jill, or walk her to her door, but they were less than 800 metres from her apartment. She said she'd be fine. They said their goodbyes, and Jill turned to walk down Sydney Road. She was a bit tipsy, but not falling down drunk. She'd be home in less than ten minutes. The road was well lit and busy, with taxis going up and down, and she'd made the journey so many times before. She would be home in no time, so she thought. Tom got into a taxi, and Jill turned to make her way up Sydney Road towards her home. On her way up the street, she stopped a group of three other girls and asked to bum a cigarette, and they obliged. Later, they would say that while she had definitely been drinking, she seemed reasonably okay. She was laden down with both her work bag and her handbag, and she was making a walk uphill. She said her heels were starting to get to her, but she was all right otherwise. She probably couldn't walk in a straight line, and was a bit wobbly, but that was only to be expected after being out for six hours. She called her brother to check in on how her father was doing, but the line was bad. Taxis were passing by, and one male driver with his 14-year-old son in the car saw Jill and briefly thought about stopping to offer her a lift, but he decided not to in case his offer might be misinterpreted. Among the foot traffic and taxis passing by, there was another figure on Sydney Road, a man in light-coloured trousers and a blue hoodie. He walked up and down. CCTV shows he moved at a fast pace, somewhat energised looking, up and down and back and forth across the street. Outside a bridal boutique, the man in the blue hoodie stopped Jill. She teetered back on her heels, standing back away from the man who had gestured at her and was now talking to her. She looked around a few times, all of this was captured on CCTV cameras inside the well-lit shop. Then the figure in the blue hoodie and Jill walk away. That was the last time that Jill was ever seen.
Meanwhile, Jill's brother had tried to get her back on the phone, but each of the three times he rang her back, there was no answer. Tom Marr, now awake at home, was also worried about Jill. He texted her, asking where she was, but he got no response. He continued to send text messages that were increasingly more worried in tone and called her phone over and over and over again, trying to find out where she was. By 5am, when Jill still hadn't returned home, Tom left the house and went looking himself. He walked down to the bar that she had been in and tried to retrace what he thought might have been her route home. When that turned up no results, Tom sent a private message on Facebook to Skye, the colleague Jill had started her night with. She was immediately concerned about her friend, knowing that it was next to impossible that Jill had simply decided not to go home. Tom contacted more friends and spent the Saturday morning looking around the neighbourhood searching for Jill before he finally gave in and rang the local police. Initially to the cops, it seemed like Jill's case was a familiar story of a person out drinking who maybe had one too many and hadn't made it to her proper home that night, and so searching for her lacked the urgency it would have otherwise had. The employees at the local bars were asked whether they'd seen Jill, and the local hospitals were contacted. The people she'd been out with the night before were contacted too, but there were no signs of Jill and then she didn't return home that Saturday night either. It was at that point that the search for Jill became serious. The Sydney Road area was searched yet again, from bar etiquette up to Hope Street, and over to Lux Way where Jill and Tom's apartment was. In one back alley, a pencil with the ABC logo was found, but there was nothing else. Strangely, later that day, a man came forward to the local police station with a handbag he had found in the same lane. The bag had a number of Jill's belongings, including her ABC work ID and her credit card. But it hadn't been there when the police searched earlier. There was a thought that perhaps the bag had been planted at that spot by someone connected to Jill's disappearance but it would turn out that the bag had in fact been found by someone before the search was conducted. He'd picked it up and brought it home, thinking that he might keep anything valuable found in it, but when he heard the news that a woman had been abducted, he put the bag back where he had found it. This opportunistic and belatedly concerned person had had nothing to do with Jill. However the bag came to be separated from Jill, though, the very fact that it had gave the police an indication that whatever had happened to her had most likely not been voluntary. People don't just leave their stuff behind. What's more, nothing from the bag was missing, bar her mobile phone. So it didn't seem that she had been robbed, either. Something was horribly wrong. By that evening, Sunday, Jill's disappearance was one of the main headlines on the nightly news, and the next morning the local police handed the case off to another unit, Crew 4, who specialised in suspicious missing person cases. That is, cases where the police suspected that they were perhaps looking for a dead body. Again, the Brunswick area was searched, more thoroughly this time to include rooftops, garden sheds, drains and so on, and CCTV from the businesses along Sydney Road were requested. 
They needed to know what Jill's last movements were. Maybe someone had followed her out of the pub. Still, it would have been highly unusual if Jill had been the victim of violence and that she had had absolutely no connection to the perpetrator. Those kinds of cases are so incredibly rare. And so it wasn't at all surprising, really, that while he was organising search parties for his missing wife, Tom became the focus of media attention and those speculating about the case on social media. It was the biggest news both in Australia and Ireland, and of course, we all know the statistics. The true crime community jokes about how the husband did it. Tom appeared on TV to plea for Jill's return, and of course, he was judged both not grief-stricken enough and also too emotional. When the police searched the Maher home and removed potential evidence from it, and took Tom's car to be analysed, the theories went into overdrive. People watched on in horror and fascination as the investigation continued. The first footage that the police reviewed was from outside the Mar home at their apartment building on Lux Way. Jill didn't appear on that footage, and so it was clear that whatever had happened, she certainly hadn't made it home that night. Then the footage from the cameras lining Sydney Road were knitted together, following Jill's path down the well-lit and busy street, until they got to the Duchess Boutique, just before the corner of Hope Road, which Jill would likely have walked down to get home. But there was no sign of Jill between that shop and her home. In the CCTV footage from the boutique, Jill is clearly seen stopping and speaking to a man in light-coloured trousers jeans probably, and a blue hoodie-style top. Another man in a red top passed them by. It was decided that the police would release this footage to get the two men to come forward, to see if they could provide any further information on where Jill had gone after walking away from the shop. The man in the red top recognised himself as soon as he saw the footage. He was a local and had walked that morning to a shop on the far corner of Hope Street, to have a kebab. He'd seen Jill and the other man, but bar saying that he was in a blue top, there wasn't really anything remarkable about him. He hadn't paid attention to his face and he wouldn't have recognised him. One thing the man knew for certain, however, was that Jill hadn't continued up the Sydney Road. He'd sat in the window of the kebab shop and watched people as they passed. He would have seen and remembered if Jill had gone further up the road she hadn't. The focus was now on the man in the blue hoodie, but there were no signs of him coming forward. People were beginning to comment that it was suspicious that he had yet to present himself to the police, given the coverage of the case, and they also noted that they thought his manner in the video was suspect. He'd walked up and down the street and didn't seem to be just a regular person about their business. He'd stopped Jill, talked to her, and then they had continued in the same direction. Something was off. 550 people called in tips following the release of the CCTV footage showing Jill speaking with the man in the blue hoodie. A number of the tips were reporting that there had been attempted abductions in the same area, and some even said it was by a man who looked similar to the one pictured on the CCTV. 
the police accessed Jill's bank accounts and saw that there had been no activity whatsoever since her disappearance. And then they got in touch with Vodafone to check her phone records. They tracked the phone's location from Brunswick, out of the city, onto a toll road and out to the highway, and found that the signal finally stopped in the middle of a rural area. Jill's phone had been transported there, by car, but they had no idea if Jill had been with it, or if she had been alive or dead. They decided to check the cameras on the toll road from that Saturday morning. The cameras took a shot of each number plate that passed by. Then all of that information was entered into the police database. When the registration for a white Holden Astra was entered into the system, it gave back the name Adrian Ernest Bailey. And he had a record. A long one for violent sexual assaults. The night that Jill was out having a few well-deserved after-work drinks, there was another person out drinking and socialising across Melbourne. Adrian Bailey went to the Quiet Man Hotel with his girlfriend to attend a work function set up by his employer, Rangedale Drainage Services. He was dressed smartly, in tidy-looking jeans and a light grey shirt, with some apparently fashionable white-pointed toe shoes. He and his partner parked his car nearby, and in they went. They stayed there until about 10pm, when the couple left in the company of a friend. The CCTV in the Irish bar caught him downing the last of his pint before wiping his mouth and swaggering out of the place. He had that affected hard man walk that was all shoulders and arms. They hailed a taxi and headed to the lounge bar on Swanson Street, but after a few hours at that bar, the night took a turn for the worse. Bailey and his girlfriend had a huge row in front of their friend, and after excusing herself to go to the bathroom, Bailey's girlfriend left the pub altogether. It took him a while to realise that she had been gone for some time, and Bailey can be seen on the pub's CCTV that night, angrily stomping about the bar looking for her and furiously dialing and redialing her number. But she'd stopped answering. She'd hopped a cab back to their place in Coburg. She didn't stay there, though, and by the time Bailey himself arrived back at the house, she was gone. So, he made a quick change of his clothes, pulling on a bright blue hoodie over his shirt. He left the house then, too. Later, he would say that he'd gotten a cab and that he was trying to get back to the Quiet Man Hotel to pick up his car. He said that the taxi driver thought he'd had a few too many and kicked him out of the car, fearing that his passenger was going to vomit. And that was how he came to be on Sydney Road in Brunswick. He decided to just start walking back home. Adrian Bailey was born on the 14th of July, 1971. His parents, Ernest and Christine Edwards, had four other children, three girls and a boy, of which Adrian was the eldest. The family lived in Melbourne. He would later say that he had a difficult childhood and was sexually abused from the ages of nine to fifteen. He was prone to outbursts of anger and mood swings, particularly when things didn't go his way or turn out how he had planned. Whatever happened in his early life, 
his adult life began early when he left both school and home at a fairly young age. He moved out to the country town of Wurialloc, which is located about 60 kilometres east from Melbourne, in the Yarra Valley region of Victoria. On the 21st of April 1990, 18-year-old Bailey married his teenage girlfriend, Debbie, who was pregnant at the time. Bailey's first child was born in October of the same year. In May of 1996, they had a second child. But Bailey had spent a few of the intervening years in prison. On the 8th of June 1990, only a few short weeks after he had been married, Bailey committed his first sexual assault that we know of. He asked a 16-year-old friend of his sister to help organize a surprise birthday party for his new wife. But that was a ruse to get the girl into his house on her own. He held the girl in the house against her will and then raped her. He was charged two days later, but denied that any of this had happened. He was released back into the community on bail pending his hearing. On the 30th of August of the same year, Less than a month after his first reported attack, he grabbed a young 17-year-old girl who was walking home from her bus stop. He tore her clothes, poked her in the eyes in an attempt to blind her, and then groped her. He was violent. He tried to rape her, but couldn't. Throughout, he threatened the girl that he would kill her, and said she was to tell no one what he'd done, and that he would leave no evidence. No one would believe her, and nothing could be proved but despite his threats and his attempt to scare this second victim into silence, she identified him to the police two weeks later. Bailey found himself in yet another interview room, denying further allegations of violent sexual assault against a stranger. Again, he was released on bail. In October of 1990, Bailey was driving on the reasonably busy Wurialloc to Healesville Road when he spotted a female hitchhiker. He pulled over and she told him she was heading for Healesville. But Bailey drove her to a remote area and tried to force her into oral sex. However, she escaped and gave his description to the police. He maintained his pattern when arrested this time and again denied any involvement. He even attempted to give the police a bogus alibi. On the 7th of June 1991, Bailey appeared before the county court in Melbourne relating to all three incidents, which he had given a sort of resigned and limited confession to. The charges he appeared in answer to were one count of rape, two of attempted rape, threats to kill and assault. His defence team told the court that he was remorseful of his acts, that he was suffering from anxiety and depression in the face of his crimes, and that he provided an excellent prospect for rehabilitation. Judge O'Shea, who he had appeared before, wasn't convinced by this mitigation, though. He said that Bailey appeared to be only concerned with what would happen to him, and had no concern for his victims. Any mental ill health he was experiencing was likely due to his feeling sorry for himself, rather than due to remorse on his part. He was sentenced to five years, three of which would be served without the prospect of parole. In the end, though, Bailey was out after 22 months, in April of 1993. 
1995, Bailey and his wife separated, and thus began a number of years where he moved about quite a bit, particularly in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. He dated a number of women, and with one of them he went on to have two more children, one born in 1998 and the other in 2000. By July of 2000, he decided that a change was needed, and so changed his name by Deedpole, from his birth name, Adrian Edwards, to the now infamous Adrian Bailey. Conveniently, this name change also hid the fact that he had a number of serious violent offences attached to his name. Conveniently, this also hid the fact that he had a number of serious violent offences attached to his name. Shortly after the name change, he began his assaulting yet again, this time choosing victims that were less likely to point him out to the police. On his drives home from work, he went through Elwood and St Kilda, and would stop in those places to pick up sex workers. But by this stage in his life, his requirements were more than just the normal transaction between customer and sex worker. His tastes required that there be an element of violence involved. So he found himself a secluded place, a lane behind a row of shops, off Kendall Street in Elwood. Between September 2000 and March 2001, he attacked sex workers who looked for work on the street. He would get them into his car and then drive them to the lane, where he would park with the passenger door close to the wall so that it couldn't be opened, and then lock the doors, telling the woman that in this isolated spot, no one would be by and there wouldn't be anyone to hear her yell for help, so they should just give in. But despite the fact that these were marginalised women, who perhaps weren't taken as seriously by the police, his attacks did not go unreported. Sixteen women went to the police to give statements. An operation was set up by two detectives to try and find the man who had been inflicting particularly gruesome violence and issuing threats to the local women. Some of the women gave harrowing accounts of violent sexual abuse that they had endured, along with a verbal assault of threats to kill them if they resisted or went to the police. Operation Keeping not only spoke to victims of these crimes, taking the perpetrator's description and a statement about the attacks, but they also forensically examined the crime scenes. With this evidence and a partial number plate from the car, the police were able to make the link to Adrian Bailey. When they arrived at his house in North Dandenong, the police were greeted by his current partner, who was nursing Bailey's youngest child. Bailey was arrested, and his car and items of clothing were seized. DNA samples would be taken at the station, which provided a concrete link between him and the attacks. Again, when at the station, he initially denied that he had ever been with these women, but would eventually go on to concede that he had visited prostitutes. In order to justify his actions, he said that he had had to seek out sex workers, as his partner wasn't sleeping with him, and he, quote, had to get it somewhere. He'd basically decided to say that his behaviour was his partner's fault, and a direct result of having to look outside his home. He was charged with 43 counts altogether, ranging from rape, false imprisonment, making threats to kill, and recklessly causing injury. After appearing in court, he was granted bail, having pulled together five grand as a bond, 
and five months later pled guilty to 16 counts of rape. Only five of the women he had attacked felt able to go to court to face him and give testimony. At his sentencing on the 26th of April 2002, the court was told that not only did he face these charges, he was also violent towards his partner, but she, having had children with him, was at that time standing by him. The court was told that he had a good support system in place to aid his rehabilitation. He told the judge that during his last prison term, he had not taken the rehabilitation program seriously and had just told them what they wanted to hear. He said that was good enough for them and he was deemed to have completed it. A psychologist report described him as having traits of both a borderline personality and an antisocial type. The judge recognised from the offender before him, the assessments, his history, and the nature of the violent crimes committed, that Bailey was a danger to society and not likely to be rehabilitated. He sentenced Bailey to 11 years in prison, and he wouldn't qualify for release until eight years of that had been served. In the end, Bailey would serve slightly less than the minimum. On his release to conditional parole in March of 2010, his DNA was not kept on file, and he was released on standard supervision terms, not those that have been recommended, not those that have been recommended by the sentencing judge. The arresting officers from these most recent offences were not contacted and told that Bailey was out on the streets again. He was out, and he melted back into Melbourne. Very quickly, after having to start over with nothing, Bailey found himself accommodation in a boarding house that let out rooms to the unemployed and other down-on-their-luck types for very little payment in the outer western suburbs of Melbourne. He also very quickly went about getting himself companionship, his last partner having left him while he was in jail. He got himself two girlfriends, despite his reduced means, and each was blissfully unaware of the other. Neither of the women had any idea that he was a parolee who had a number of convictions for violent rapes and assaults, and neither relationship would last long. Loretta, a woman with two kids, would quickly see another side of Bailey and would end things with him. But the other woman would end up living in Coburg with him. In February of 2012, Bailey would find himself yet again before the courts, this time in relation to an unprovoked assault on a man outside a hotel. Bailey had yelled at him and then punched him in the face, breaking his jaw, for no apparent reason. Bailey said that he didn't remember the incident, as he'd been drinking heavily, but there was CCTV footage of it, and he pled guilty. He was sentenced to three months in prison, but he appealed this, saying the sentence was overly severe, and found himself back out on the street shortly after. His parole for the 11-year sentence was not affected by this attack. Bailey moved around a lot at this point, and few people were close to him. Those that came across him, though, described him as careful and particular. He was fastidious, both about his living space, which he kept pinned neat and tidy at all times, and about his appearance. He worked out in the gym a lot. People said he was quiet, kept his head down, and kept to himself. He held down a job working for a plumbing company. Only one of his co-workers had anything slightly negative to say about him. Apparently, while working alongside him, Bailey had joined in their sex chat by saying something about liking sleeping with drunk girls. 
He also became a regular at a strip club, Maxine's in Brunswick. He had a favourite dancer, who would later say that he told her that he liked rough sex and strangling women. He had to be asked to leave when he broke the rules a few times. Though he seemed to keep his private life mostly under control, being a good tenant, keeping himself to himself, and turning up for work, he had a number of parole violations. Five, in fact. He often missed the meetings he was required to attend. He drank. He broke curfew. But he was confident and self-assured, and did as he liked. After all, he was on parole and allowed out on bail after assaulting someone. There was a reason for his self-assuredness. No one had given him the impression that he was likely to be punished for what he was up to. When Bailey's Astra had been identified by police as travelling on the roads on the night of Jill's disappearance, his mobile phone records were also then accessed by police, and his phone's location mirrored that of Jill's from about four in the morning until about six. The phones had moved from Brunswick, then out of the city, onto the toll road, then onto the highway, and into the countryside. Given this evidence and Bailey's history, they tapped his phone and began watching his movements. The police tried to set up a casual meeting with his caseworker through the probation service, but due to a miscommunication, he was told that there was a quote-unquote serious investigation into him going on. It wasn't likely to turn up for a meeting like that, and so the plan was scrapped and a new one put in place. They called out to the house on Bud Street in Coburg, a six-minute drive from the Maher home, and showed stills from the CCTV to Bailey's partner. She recognised him immediately, and she knew what it meant. The house was searched, with a number of personal items of Bailey's being taken, including a shovel with dirt still clinging to it from recent use and bits of a smashed mobile phone. His girlfriend also handed over a beaten-up SIM card from a mobile that she'd found in the washing machine after cleaning some of Bailey's clothing. The SIM would be confirmed as having belonged to Jill Maher's phone. It had fallen out of Bailey's pocket in the wash. After the search was complete, someone rang Bailey and asked him to come home from work. While he had been under surveillance, he had gone about his daily routine as if nothing was wrong, and he handled this much the same, told his boss that he had to go, who asked him if it had had anything to do with the previous Friday, and the mysterious bruise to his nose, to which Bailey responded only, probably. When he got back to his flat, he was taken into custody and brought to the St Kilda Road Police Complex. By 4pm, he found himself in an interview room being questioned in relation to the disappearance of Jill Maher. Bailey had had no idea that the police investigation had been nearly entirely focused on him in the last few days, and thought that he was being questioned as a routine matter, along with any other known criminals in the area of the disappearance. And the police were happy to keep it that way. They brought him into an interrogation room, which they'd made look as casual as possible and just started to ask him run-of-the-mill questions about his movements the night Jill had disappeared. He told them that he'd been out drinking, and that he and his girlfriend had had a row and she'd left. He said that he went home, got into her car, and started driving around looking for her, only returning back to their flat at half five or so. 
But then police told him about his mobile phone records. He said he didn't know how to explain them. He'd been in the city, and he hadn't travelled out north to Gisborne. They told him that Jill Maher's phone had made the same journey, and that they had his car on video going through the tolls, and that they found Jill's sim in his house. Eventually, and reluctantly, Bailey confessed, after a manner. He cried, and said he just wanted to do the right thing, but also said that he didn't want to talk about what had happened. He said he'd seen Jill on the street, and that she was upset, and he'd walked with her and talked with her to try and help, but she was drunk and had told him to fuck off, and he got angry, then he'd strangled her. Eventually, he admitted that he'd raped her. Jill had been dragged to a back alley off Hope Street, minutes from her home. It was down the back of some shops, in a series of interconnecting yards and side streets. It wasn't entirely desolate, though. The area did have some apartments adjoining it. Late that night, a couple heard a disturbance coming from the yards, a woman yelling, giving out and possibly cursing. But then they'd heard what they thought was a door slam, and nothing more. Whatever the fight was, they thought it was over. After he had killed Jill, Bailey knew that he would have to dispose of her body. Jill herself was the best evidence against him, and he'd have to ensure that she wasn't found. So he went home, changed his clothes, donning now a tan-coloured hoodie and a grey beanie hat. He got into a white Holden Astra, which was registered in his name but belonged to his girlfriend, and drove back to the alley off Hope Street. He put Jill into the boot of the car, along with her torn clothes and her mobile phone, and started to drive. The white Holden with reg plate UAJ350 was seen on a CCTV camera, turning into the lane off Hope Street, and then at 4.26 it was seen leaving. The car was captured on Sydney Road and through the city until he decided to head north and out of Melbourne. Within an hour, Bailey was surrounded by farms, completely shot of the suburbs of Melbourne. He pulled off the highway and travelled quickly down a few smaller rural roads before he ended up on Black Hill Road, about 50 kilometres from where he had started out in Brunswick. He was now driving on a rural dirt road. He stopped, leaving the headlights on, and got out to begin digging. He only managed to get down just more than a foot deep. The shallow hole was barely large enough to fit Jill's body. It was a lazy and sloppy job, and can easily be interpreted as a further sign of contempt, or one of his hurry to get back home and establish an alibi. Between five and six, Bailey also made a number of calls from his mobile to a workmate, possibly trying to establish an alibi for himself. He got back into his car and began to drive home to Coburg in Melbourne, but his car ran out of petrol. He ended up flagging down a local man, Dale Watkins, who was on his normal drive to work. After much begging and cajoling, Mr. Watkins drove Bailey to the nearest petrol station, where Bailey was caught on CCTV, making his purchase. When he got back to his flat at about half six, his landlady saw him arrive. He told her that he'd been called out by his boss to check on a pipe after a long night out. 
He got inside and smashed Jill's phone up and then went to make amends with his girlfriend, who'd come back to the flat and was sleeping in the spare room. She heard him moving about around seven. He said he was up taking a shower and came to apologise to her, saying he was sorry and that he wasn't angry at her. Bailey asked for her to come with him into the main bedroom and for them to sleep off the night before. She noticed that Bailey had a bruise across his nose, which he said he'd gotten when he was looking for her the night previous. He'd gotten into a fight with a couple of guys. The couple slept until half twelve, when they got into the white Astra and went to pick up Bailey's car from near to the Quiet Man Hotel. On their way back home, they stopped and picked up kebabs and rented films. That's how they spent the rest of the afternoon. But Bailey hadn't simply forgotten about what he'd been up to the night before. He left his home late Sunday night and was spotted on CCTV footage yet again at a Caltex petrol station, cleaning his car, inside and out, which he did again the next day. He initially turned up for work, but then said he'd been ill all weekend and begged off. He used this free time to head to a car service company, where he had four new tyres fitted to the Astra, and told a worker there he was getting a new mat for the boot of the car too. Then he went and got a roadworthy certificate, and began the process of transferring the car into his girlfriend's name. When his girlfriend heard the news that a woman had gone missing not far from where they lived, Bailey warned her that she was to be careful walking around the area, that she was to take the car to be extra safe, before concluding that, in this case, the husband had probably done it. With the full story now out in the open, six hours after the interview began, it was suspended. Grudgingly, Bailey had given some information. Grudgingly, Bailey said that he'd be able to direct the detective to the dirt road where he'd buried Jill, and eventually, he did. A forensic examination of that scene began as Bailey was driven back to St Kilda Road Station, and appeared before a special sitting of the magistrate's court. Unsurprisingly, he was ordered into custody, due to the nature of the crime. An autopsy conducted a week after Jill's death revealed that she had been brutally raped and beaten. She sustained substantial injuries to her face from being struck. She had been killed by manual strangulation and there were severe bruises around her neck, bleeding in the muscles of her neck and a fractured larynx. It had been a sustained and consistent compression of the neck which had ultimately killed her. The only injury visible on Bailey was a bruise across the bridge of his nose. Bailey's next appearance before the court was on Friday the 28th of September, for a filing hearing at 1pm. Tom Marr and Jill's brother, Michael McKeown, were also present in the courtroom when Bailey was ushered in, head down, to hear the charges read against him once more, and for him to be remanded into custody with no bail. From the back of the courtroom, as he was coming in, a member of the public shouted at him, Maggish! he screamed. Meanwhile, the police continued to search along the route that Bailey had taken to and from Gisburn, looking for further personal items of Jill that Bailey had said he'd thrown from the car. They also began piecing together the CCTV footage showing Bailey's whereabouts 
the night of the 22nd, when Jill had disappeared. The media had been obsessed with the Jill Maher case since it first broke on the Sunday evening, and so had social media. Twitter and Facebook had basically blown up with the news as each detail was released, and people started coming up with theories and discussing the implications of the case for the Australian justice system and women in general. A Facebook group for Jill soon racked up hundreds of thousands of members. From this social media outpouring, after the discovery of Jill's body, a march of sorts was organised by Brunswick locals in memory of their neighbour, whom they'd never met but felt a deep connection and sympathy for. 30,000 people turned up to walk along Sydney Road. Memorials also began springing up outside the Duchess Boutique, outside the Mars apartment, outside a Baptist church on Sydney Road, and on the little dirt road that Jill had been found on. The city of Melbourne, and indeed all of Australia, was mourning the loss of this woman who was simply walking home after a good night out. There was outrage as the public found out that the man who had been charged with the abduction, rape and killing of Jill Maher had a string of convictions for violent rapes and had spent over a decade in prison. And yet, and yet, that night, he'd been out walking the streets. Two weeks after Jill's death, her funeral and memorial services were held on Friday the 5th of October. There were two services, one in Melbourne and the other in Drogheda. The main service was held in the Faulkner Memorial Garden, where a hundred invited mourners attended a private service. The park was closed for the service, but piles of floral tributes were left at the gate. This service included Jill's favourite songs, and even some dancing, before 29 white doves were released in her memory. Later, a mass was said at the church in Drogheda, after a memorial procession had made its way through the town. That way, her 30 or so relatives in the town could also have a chance to say goodbye. Meanwhile, the online attention that Jill's case had attracted continued, but this time it was focused on Bailey rather than on his victim. Mainly, it took the form of expressing the various ways in which Bailey should be put to death for his crimes. The attention was such that Bailey and his lawyers appeared before the court in relation to it, complaining that Bailey was so reviled publicly through these statements and threats that there would be no way for him to secure fairness in his trial unless these online statements were curbed. The court ordered that discussing Bailey was no longer allowed, either in the mainstream media or online, and many of the venues that this hate-filled vitriol had appeared managed to contain and stop it, but not all. All this attention, it was said, led to another dramatic moment. Bailey was found in his cell, suffering from a number of self-inflicted injuries. It would appear that the negative attention, combined with the situation he found himself in, had led him to attempt suicide, by cutting his wrists, elbows, and ankles, which are fairly strange places to start with. He'd gotten hold of an old top of a tin can. Bailey was taken to the hospital where he was treated and released the next day, indicating that the injuries were perhaps not all that serious. But the most lasting effect was that he was now considered to be a suicide risk. He would be kept on his own in a cell for 23 out of 24 hours now, and he would have a prison guard check him and his cell every half hour. This was probably not the result that he was after. 
Bailey's next appearance at court was just a routine mention at the magistrate's court on the 18th of January. He appeared via video link. It became clear at this hearing that it was Bailey's intention to plead not guilty against the charge of murder and three charges of rape that he now faced, and so a committal hearing was set to take place on the 12th and 13th of March to determine the strength of the case against him and whether the evidence was such that a full jury trial was appropriate. The ban on media publications was also extended until that date. But Bailey and his legal team would appear before the court before the allotted date. They wanted to put off the committal hearing. They had received a brief of the state's evidence, which they said would take some time for the lawyers to go over. They wanted to be able to cross-examine the police on its contents and they also wanted to secure independent testing results on the DNA from the crime scene. By every appearance, Bailey seemed determined to have his legal team go over the evidence with a fine-tooth comb, and to contest it, if at all possible. He wasn't going to just give in. But the state objected to the application for more time, saying that the defence had plenty of time, and what couldn't be done in that period wasn't pertinent to the forthcoming committal hearing anyway. The judge at the magistrate's court agreed. The hearing the next week would go ahead. The hearing on the 12th of March was open to the public, and this time required that Bailey be physically present in the court. So there he appeared, in a courtroom with special protections for defendants. He sat with three guards and behind six inches of glass. The brief, or what we would call here the Book of Evidence, was gone through, presenting the evidence gathered through the investigation. Certain witnesses were called, the Chinese couple who had heard the fight on Hope Street, and a police officer. Then Dr. Matthew Lynch, the pathologist who had carried out the autopsy, gave evidence of Jill's injuries. Here, Bailey's defence barrister, Helen Spowart, carefully cross-examined the witness, trying to ascertain if there was any way that the injuries inflicted on Jill that led to her death could have occurred accidentally. The doctor acknowledged that the damage to Jill's throat, the bruising and hemorrhaging, could often be found in non-fatal cases, and that the damage to her larynx was much lower down the neck than is usually found. At the end of the hearing, Bailey entered his pleas. He said that in the matter of one charge of rape, he pled guilty, but for the charges of murder and the other two counts of rape, he entered pleas of not guilty. The brief was released to the press, all barring a few photos that the judge deemed too sensitive, and soon the full details of the crime were in the public domain. But less than a month after this hearing, Bailey appeared before the Supreme Court, he'd arranged to enter new pleas in the case. Now he was pleading guilty to murder and one charge of rape. These were accepted by the judge, Mr Justice Joffrey Nettle. The ban on publishing negative pieces about Bailey was again extended, and pre-sentencing submissions were fixed to be heard before the Victorian Supreme Court on the 11th of June. Darren Hinch, a well-known media personality in Victoria, ran his own online blog. He decided to publish information about Bailey being allowed to move from his parents' house due to their concerns about him attacking another woman, and that this was how he had come to live with his girlfriend in Coburg. 
He published this post the same day as Bailey first appeared before the Supreme Court to enter his pleas. Unlike the other pieces that have been put out on the internet about Bailey and Jill Maher's murder, Hinch came to the attention of the courts. He was a well-known media person and had form with being outspoken and getting himself into trouble. He was charged with contempt. Bailey appeared before the Supreme Court on the 11th of June with a new lawyer for sentencing submissions, senior counsel Saul Holt. The evidence against Bailey once again was gone through, and a psychological report made after meeting with Bailey the previous month was described to the court by eminent doctor Professor James Ogloff. He said that Bailey suffered from borderline personality disorder. He felt a strong desire to have power and control over his victims and that he was highly likely to reoffend. Further, he said that although Bailey expressed remorse, an element of this was remorse for the damage Bailey had done to his own life. Bailey's senior counsel put it to the judge that his client felt remorse for what had happened, that that night he was drunk, so drunk a taxi had turned him out on Sydney Road, and that he had had a quote-unquote rage-based response to his interaction with Jill. There was also the fact that prison was more onerous on Bailey than it would be otherwise due to the special conditions that he had to be kept in to ensure his safety. He was totally isolated. Holt asked for a minimum non-parole term to be imposed to account for Bailey's guilty plea, his remorse, and to provide some hope for rehabilitation in the future. A letter from Bailey outlining his remorse for his actions was read for the court. After that, seven separate victim impact statements were made, both in person and through being read out by lawyers. Jill's mother and father, Tom, her friend Aoife Lyons, her brother Michael, and her boss from ABC all gave statements. Her father George, dignified but through tears, described how Jill had told him after he became ill that he had to get better in order to live to see his grandkids. That would never happen now. Tom said that he was now, quote, half a person because of this crime, end quote. The proceedings were adjourned for a week for Mr. Justice Nettle to consider what he had heard and to come to an appropriate sentence. When the 19th of June rolled round, courtroom number four was packed with reporters and members of the public who had joined Jill Maher's family to hear the sentence that had been decided for Bailey. Mr. Justice Nettle again gave a summary of the case, noting that it was a particularly horrific crime, made worse by Bailey's, quote, attempt to conceal the deceased body and the fact that the offending was committed while he was released on parole and on bail, end quote. The judge rejected that alcohol had played much of a role in Bailey's committing the crime and cited the other nine charges for which Bailey had been jailed before, listing them in the court for the record too. That said, he had to take into account the guilty plea, what little remorse Bailey seemed to have, and to give some chance that rehabilitation and release might be possible in the future. Bailey was sentenced to a non-parole term of 35 years. He would not be eligible for release until 2048, and he would be something like 77 years old at that time. On the steps of the Supreme Court, George McKeown made a statement on behalf of the rest of Jill's family. He said, Jill lived a life full of family, friends, and her beloved Tom. 
Jill was brutally raped and murdered, and is never coming back. Because of Ben Leonard and the team at Victoria Police and Richard Lewis and his colleagues at Public Prosecutions Victoria, justice has now been done. Police and prosecutors, we thank you. End quote. That was all. Bailey had 28 days to bring an appeal of his sentence, and did so on the last day with mere hours to spare, sparking further public outcry, and accusations that this appeal in and of itself did away with the idea that he had in fact any remorse for the brutal rape and murder of Gilmar. When the hearing occurred for Bailey to seek leave to appeal, it was of course denied. The court this time found that Mr Justice Nettle had not erred in his judgment, There was no contention as to the facts of the case, and he was required to take into account public safety in his decision. Furthermore, the terms, 15 years for one count of rape and 35 for murder, was in line with previous rulings. The non-parole term was not excessive, and Bailey would have to serve his time out. In the wake of Jill's murder, a report into the Adult Parole Board was carried out by a former Supreme Court justice. The Callanan report was released in August of 2013. It had investigated the current policies and practices of the parole board in Victoria and made a number of recommendations for reform of the process. It highlighted the fact that the parole board was incredibly overworked and advocated for oversight in the form of an independent person, preferably a retired justice. The two most important recommendations to come from it were being rid of the automatic application for parole being made on behalf of the convicted by the system. This automatic application led to a culture that saw parole as an automatic entitlement rather than a privilege awarded to those who would prove themselves worthy. From this point on, prisoners would have to make their own applications to the Adult Parole Board for consideration. The second change was to make breaking bail or parole conditions an offence in and of itself. Until that point, someone who had broken their conditions couldn't be arrested simply for that and returned to prison. That has now changed. But these reforms weren't the only result of the trial of Adrian Bailey for the rape and murder of Jill Maher. After the suppression orders were lifted and people heard what Bailey had done, for a few women the stories were startlingly familiar. The first was a woman who, in 2000, found herself in a difficult position. She had left home young and become addicted to heroin. She turned to sex work to try and make ends meet. She read about Bailey in the papers and realised that she had met him, and he had raped her too. He was her third and final client. That night, she had been at a meeting at a centre for sex workers in St Kilda and was reading a pamphlet which was basically a circular from other sex workers in the area, notifying their colleagues of men who had become violent with them when a car pulled up alongside her, asking if she was working. She got into the car and made a comment to her new client about how there were a lot of bad people about. He turned to her and said that he was one of those bad guys and punched her. He brought her to a secluded lane, parking the car next to a fence, making her unable to open the door. The man raped her violently. When another car pulled into the lane, she began banging on the window of the red mini she was being held captive in, 
but her attacker shoved his hand into her mouth, putting his fingers down the back of her throat so she couldn't breathe. She thought she was going to die. She did manage to get out of the car, however, and was picked up by a female motorist a short distance away, who told her to go to the police. But she thought that because she had been a sex worker and a drug user, that there was no point. She was also scared that her family would find out what she had been doing. She told her boyfriend about the attack, and he slapped her and called her a slut. She gave the man's description to the collective whose meeting she had been at that night, too. She eventually moved from the area. Saul Holt's senior counsel, again acting for Bailey, said he denied the charge and said that the woman must have misidentified him. She had seen his picture on a Facebook page, and he argued that she had mistook Bailey for her attacker. On July 13th, 2014, Bailey was found guilty of three counts of rape, two counts of assault, making threats to kill, and false imprisonment. In the second case, Bailey again denied any involvement in the crime. The victim in this case was attacked in April of 2012, the same year Jill Maher was killed. Again, she was working on the streets of St. Kilda on the 4th of April when Bailey picked her up and took her to a secluded lane. As he raped her, he told her that she should have had someone watching out for her. For some reason, he also told her that he took steroids and went to a gym in Preston. At one point, she hit out at his windscreen with her foot, causing a crack in the glass. He said he would kill her, but she managed to convince him to take her to a hotel so that she could use the bathroom, and then refused to leave again with him. She went to the police the next week, arriving at the station drunk and armed with box cutters, wanting to know who had attacked her so that she could kill him. Six months later, she went back to the police after seeing a computer-generated picture of Bailey, shown in relation to an attack in St. Kilda. This time, she told them about his distinctive tattoos and how he had attended the gym in Preston. This was information that was not publicly known at that time. Again, Saul Holt represented Bailey. This time he said that because of the delay in reporting, there was a lot of detail in the media about his client by the time she approached police in December of 2012. He said, quote, Our case is that she has intentionally used details she got elsewhere to identify Adrian Bailey. She has jumped on the Adrian Bailey bandwagon, end quote. The jury found him guilty of the charges in less than an hour on March 12, 2015. The final case taken against Bailey involved a 27-year-old tourist from the Netherlands. She had been walking home from a pub when a car pulled over. The man inside said that he had seen her quote-unquote hobbling along the road and that there was another car following her. So she got in, to what she thought was safety. He pulled into a side street and raped her, taking her passport in the process. He asked her over and over if she would go to the police, but she said she wouldn't. She thought that maybe if she did what he wanted, he would let her go. She managed to convince him that she was inviting him back to her empty house, and he drove her there, but she fled inside and started screaming, and he ran. Her flatmates then called triple zero. Again, Holt, on behalf of Bailey, argued that this was a case of mistaken identity. However, there was CCTV of Bailey's car in the area the night of the attack. 
Her housemates gave his description to the police, and the victim, who gave evidence by video link from her home, identified him as her attacker. Again, on the 26th of March 2015, he was found guilty. Adrian Bailey's sentence was increased to a minimum term of 43 years to account for the new convictions against him. At the conclusion of these three trials, a suppression order was again lifted. Suppression orders seem to be quite popular in Australia. There are the normal subjudice contempt rules as well, of course, which prohibit the publishing of certain information after charges have been laid and before a trial takes place, which might impact or influence the trial in any way. But these suppression orders are one step further, which can, and often do, mean that there can be no reporting or coverage of a particular court case. Sometimes the suppression order itself is off-limits from reporting. Its main use is to prevent information becoming public that will not feature in a trial, such as previous convictions, or, as was the case in the relation to the series of trials Adrian Bailey had in 2014 and 2015, to ensure that the outcome of one trial will not impinge on another. One of the effects of the series of orders in relation to Bailey was that a book written by Joe St. John on the Jill Maher murder was written, published, and then recalled within weeks of it becoming available. Thankfully, a kind listener was able to lend me a copy of that book, and it has formed part of the research for this episode. In March 2016, Bailey brought an appeal against the decisions of the juries in the three subsequent rape trials, and said also that the sentencing of 18 years was excessive. The argument was that Bailey had been falsely identified by the women who either saw his picture on Facebook or were presented with a photo lineup by police. On July 13, 2016, the Supreme Court returned with the result of Bailey's appeals. They found that in the case of the sex worker who had identified Bailey from Facebook, the prejudice of that information outweighed its probative value. His conviction in relation to that case was quashed. The appeal against the other case, involving the Dutch backpacker, was dismissed. The result of the appeal reduced Bailey's sentence. His non-parole period was cut from 43 years to 40. Adrian Bailey last made the papers when he was stabbed with a fork in prison in 2017. He remains in high-security protective custody for his own safety. Tom Marr has become an advocate for organisations for the prevention of violence against women. It seems, after being stopped in the street by a strange man, Jill had faced the impossible choice of whether to walk up a well-lit street but further away from home, or to turn a corner into a quieter, darker part of her neighbourhood, but at least heading towards safety. We try and glean some sort of lesson from a crime, a moral of the story. Sometimes it leads to victim-blaming. She shouldn't have walked home, alone, in the dark. Or that we should teach our boys not to rape people. Both do have their points. We have to be careful about our own safety, and we should teach our children not to wrong one another. But the frightening truth is, Mostly, we do do these things. General, polite society, the world most of us live in, these things are actually a given. And that's what makes this so scary. 
For whatever reason, sometimes people don't live by the same rules we do. And sometimes we're victims of that. Jill's case is so terrifying because it could have been any of us. She was randomly chosen on a dark street, on a street she knew well, minutes from her home, in a moment of vulnerability that she didn't even realize existed. That's what's terrifying about these cases. There's lessons to be learned from crimes between two people who know each other, but this kind of thing? The terrifying thought is that maybe there's nothing we can do. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. A big thanks this week to one of our newest supporters on Patreon, Obscura True Crime Podcast. This really is an excellent podcast that's come out in the past year. Justin and his team do a really brilliant job putting together highly produced stories, and it's really well worth a listen. So head on over to Obscura and give them a listen if you haven't already. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. So if you want to help support the podcast, like Justin and the team over at Obscura, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash pod. There are perks and bonus content. We now have two bonus episodes a month, one for $1 and up patrons, so that's basically everybody. You'll get a monthly in-brief episode where I recap things that have happened in the Irish courts in the month before, and then $5 and more patrons get access to Men's Ray Guilt Trips, which are stories about mostly Irish crimes. Again, those are once a month, so if you can help out at all, head over to Patreon today. A big thanks this week also to one of our listeners from Australia, who, as I mentioned, allowed me to borrow not one, but two books from her on the Jill Maher case, without which I don't think this episode would be possible. So thank you so much to Diane Hamilton, who's down in Australia. Thank you so much for trusting me with this incredibly hard-to-find book. Thank you so much, Diane. Next time, we're back in Britain, where two little girls go missing in 2002, and a horrifying story emerges of what happened to them. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes, or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. When they arrived at his house in North Dandenong, in North Dandenong, in North Dandenong,